Welcome to episode six of the Into the Hopper podcast. I'm Tim Hopper and co-hosting today with my former podcast guest, Adam Laicano. Our guest today is Willem Pinar, lead developer for the open source Feast feature store library, as well as a developer at uh, Tekton, which is a commercial uh, uh, feature store um, product. Willem and Adam, welcome. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. Hi, thanks for inviting me back. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Um, Willem, you uh, recently changed jobs to uh, work at a uh, at Tekton, but you you have a background in, in Gojek, which is an interesting company uh, that probably a lot of people don't know about. So maybe you can introduce yourself and, and explain your background a little bit. Yeah, so I'm actually, as I'll give you like a quick whirlwind tour. I'm a South African. Um, it's kind of in technology for a long time. Uh, built a startup in South Africa around networking, worked in industrial automation and kind of ERP um, and kind of data warehousing for MNCs. Um, did that in South Africa and in Thailand and eventually landed in kind of like, like gravitated towards the data space and uh, landed it at Gojek in Singapore. So at the time, I th- this was 2017, Gojek was about a kind of a billion dollar valuation company. It's an Indonesian company. It's a ride hailing slash uh, digital payments slash food delivery kind of super app. And uh, so they have like a logistic network, kind of like Uber and uh, Lyft. And they power various services through that logistic network. Um, but um, so, so, so basically, we had a directive at the time to start a data team. And uh, the company had, I guess it was four or five core problems that they wanted to solve. And they knew they had a lot of, so they had engineering teams focusing on the product itself. And they knew they were sitting on a lot of data and they wanted to the product experience for those core products um, using the data that they had um, been building up. So they staffed a data team and I led the engineering for that data team and they also hired a bunch of data scientists. I think in 2017 the kind of idea was you just hire a bunch of data scientists and you put them in a room and then you know, something's going to happen. Um, a lot of companies did that. It turns out it doesn't really work that well. But uh, yeah, so at the time um, we had Problems like you know we had pricing. One of it was one of our key problems. Like how do you price a ride-hailing company? Like so, the supply and demand is obviously a big factor there. But if you want to make a booking from one side of the you know the city to another, what price do we give the user? Uh, matchmaking, which drivers do we assign to which customers? We had things like fraud detection that was a big one, um, and food recommendation systems. And so those are all kind of ML systems that we wanted to build and that we eventually did build at Gojek. So when I started there, we were building these solutions, essentially. We were not uh, kind of platform or product team. Um, and then as we built those, we our team was about five to 10 folks. The data science team was growing rapidly. It was about 30, 40 folks. And we, at some point, we realized that we could not maintain um, you know, keep up with all the data scientists and all the use cases they had and the speed that they were iterating at. And so we kind of pivoted towards building reusable tooling and eventually platforms for them to operate on. And when we started looking at the platform, building platforms, um, we, you know, we looked at the complete ML lifecycle and the focus in the area that we thought was the 
lowest hanging fruit? Like what was the central service or central tools that we wanted to, to build along this ML lifecycle that could really address, um, you know, what, what that was really slowing down our data scientists and their ability to deliver solutions for the company on those core products. And so the feature store is one thing that we built that was a key problem that, that our data scientists had that was like, how do you, how do you take data that you have developed or how do you work with data in the offline sense and then productionize that data for your ML use cases? Um, so there's a lot to talk about there, but um, so Feast was the product that we built and then eventually open source. We built that in collaboration with Google um, and we deployed that and operated that. It's still running today at Gojek um, and it addresses, I think, the majority of the ML use cases, although not all of them. Um, so that's that's Feast is the feature store. Um, that we built through them. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of the whirlwind tour of how we I got to where I was. And uh, so we'll, we'll dive into some of that a, li- a little more, but then you recently uh, moved to Tecton, which is, is are they uh, su- supporting your work on Feast or are you working on uh, the Tecton product as well? Oh, that's, an, that's a good question. Yeah, so I, I've just joined, I've left Gojek and I've joined Tecton. So um, Feast entered, entered the Linux Foundation, and so um, it's kind of like an open project now. It's not governed by a single company. And uh, my focus right now at Tecton is almost entirely Feast. Um, so Tecton and you know the Feast developers and community really believe the same thing. Like we, we can build the the best in class feature store, and so I'm focused on Tecton, the core product, as well as Feast. But we believe that you know. Together, these two solutions can, over time, address the same problem space. So they're not they're separate products right now, but they're kind of converging to one thing. Um, but uh, most of my attention, <clears throat> excuse me, most of my attention right now is on Feast, and so they're investing heavily into Feast. Um, so injecting engineering resources and product resources, and helping us grow the community, grow the user base. Um, so that's something I'm super excited about. But yeah, to answer your question, I'm working heavily on Feast. Feature stores are something that we're hearing a lot about in the last few years in the uh, uh, broader data science machine learning space. Uh, but I think a lot of people are still, me partially included, are still wondering what is a feature store and particularly how does it dis- distinguish itself from other type of data sources like uh, maybe just your, your company's data warehouse or um, transactional databases. Um, so what, what makes a feature store unique in, in what it provides? I think, well, it's, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. Everybody has this own, their own idea of what a feature store is. Some people, if you give them a Git repo with a bunch of PySpark transformations, they say that's a feature store, and others say Redis cluster is a feature store. So depending on if you speak to an engineer or some you know, data scientist at a bank. Um, my definition is to me, a feature store is an opinionated operational data system specifically for machine learning. Um, so there are some unique aspects to what makes a feature store a feature store in my view. Um, one is it connects the two worlds of kind of offline and online. So your development and um, production environments, as well as the kind of data and ML worlds. So on the one side you have, <coughs> excuse me, one side you have folks creating features, working with data, engineering data. And on the other side, you have consumption of that data. And often in in uh, machine learning, especially in the kind of MVP cases or 
uh, kind of nascent cases, you'll see teams working with or, or not decoupling these two processes. They'll build end-to-end ML, <coughs> excuse me, end-to-end ML solutions that essentially, you know, you've got one pipeline that transforms everything, trains the model, deploys the model, and what we found, Gojek, that is was that was extremely um, hard to iterate on for different teams, and it led to a lot of siloing of transformations and um, duplication of work. And so um, the feature store essentially decouples those two worlds. Um, so you can have one group creating data or features and the other group consuming them for training models or serving models. Um, so th- that split is one of the key things and that like on-ramping, the ability to on-ramp your data into the production world is, is a key value prop. And then there are some other things like feature stores provide a unified view between kind of the training and serving worlds. Um, and I think that's important uh, as well, uh, but I guess less so than the ability to kind of operationalize data. Yeah, so to, to kind of compare this to like a warehouse, a warehouse doesn't have an online view, right? So you can't, you know, query a snowflake or something uh, in, in, in production. When you say an online view, you mean something like a API or a service that's like yeah. a low latency thing that says, give me the value of this feature right now at this exact second. Yep. In reading the Feast documentation, it, it uh, brought me back a lot to the the, um, the Google paper, Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt, um, which I assume you're familiar with. Is there, do you think this is was motivated this movement towards feature stores in the last few years was motivated, um, at least indirectly, through that recognition that you can create a real mess uh, through uh, jumbling all these kinds of pieces together. Uh, yes, definitely. So what we found was that often you don't have, you don't know what the best design is. You just realize that if you look at the landscape of systems that you'd built, there's inefficiency. You have an intuition for that, but you don't know, how, you know, how to properly solve that. Um, so, we 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 actually iterate on a lot of different architectures. And if you look at like TFX and a lot of the other kind of uh, DAG building solutions, that's that's a kind of different approach where you kind of the, the transformation gets ported into different use cases and solutions. Um, the feature store architecture is just one way that you can solve this problem, but it's, it's so to go back to your point about that high interest credit card. Yeah, that definitely resonated with us. We we saw that there was a lot of technical debt in our solutions. And this architecture is one of the ways you could indre- address that for specifically the data um, kind of operationalizing data, um, which we saw as the highest debt. Right, so just we just had like incredible amounts of duplication and. It's also just, it's, it's, it's so many things in one. It's like, you know, you've got teams that they, they don't work in a structured way and um, just within their own team, or it could be just a single person you know, duplicating his own work that they, they didn't have a way to, you know, organize their data to iterate on their own, um, you know, versions of their models or solutions, um, like end-to-end demo solutions. I can see... Like a uh, feature store showing a lot of value at the point where you get this duplication between teams. Uh, you know, maybe you've got the, you know, variety pricing model versus an ad placement model or whatever. And maybe, you know, these teams are duplicating data or duplicating code or duplicating whatever. Um, but, you know, you just mentioned a single, a single developer and a single team working on a single product. Like, do you see a time in the 
kind of ML product life cycle where it's time to start in investing in setting up a future store like Feast. You mean for the for a single person? Um, I mean, like, so let's say, you know, you've got some Hack Week project and you're like, hey, look, I built this little model to do something. You might not want to invest in a fully featured offline online feature store to do that little product uh, project. But then when you're like, okay, let's like make sure that this thing is rock solid and going to to all of our users, that's when you kind of harden up some of your infrastructure and perhaps a feature store could be part of it then. Or perhaps you could stick with this sort of single end-to-end pipeline like you were saying you had at, at Gojek. Um, yeah. And at some so, point, a feature store should come in. I'm curious where you see that point. Yeah, that's an awesome question. So that's a very topical because this is exactly what we're working on right now with Feast. So one of the we spoke to a lot of our users, and it turns out that almost all of our users or platform teams um, or I mean, our, our adopters or kind of like you know, there's like five to ten engineers working in a, cent- or a centralized data platform or ML platform and they deploy Feast and then their users kind of use that. Um, so if you look at, if you consider that to be a, like a ladder, that there are almost no low rungs to that ladder. If you're a single data scientist, I believe that there is value to having a structured way to get into production or at least to organize your you know, feature engineering so that when you do go to production, it's just like flipping a switch or something. <clears throat> but most feature stores are not organized like that and they're not easy to deploy. And Feast is no different. It's kind of it's kind of hard to deploy. It's you know it's Terraform and Helm and you need to have you know some Spark configuration or Beam depending on which version you're running. So typically you know the, the folks we've spoken to uh, if you if you speak to like platform teams, they're happy to do that, and it's once of cost, and everybody benefits. Um, and as a data scientist, you typically don't use Feast at the start, but as soon as you think you're going to start operationalizing or productionizing your system, you you know start onboarding. But what we're trying to do now with Feast is uh, really ask the question: Can a single user find value in Feast, or at least? Can a small pod, a solution-oriented pod, like if you're just solving a problem and you don't want to build a platform, you don't want to serve other people, but you want to lift a key metric or something in the the company, can you deploy Feast? So our focus right now is heavily on like how how can we make it more lightweight? How can we make it easier to deploy? And it's kind of an experiment right now, but that's something that we do think is possible and something that we think will kind of expand the reach of Feast if we can pull it off. Can we dive into that? A little bit more and uh, talk concretely about you know, if a single user was going to start uh, dabbling in feasts. What um, I guess I'm a little bit interested in the setup process, but more so interested in what functionality is actually going to be offered and how it uh, fits into uh, their their actual machine learning pipeline. Yeah, so I think one of the key things to highlight about Feast is that it doesn't provide you a means of doing transformations. So that's something that I guess is a little bit controversial because most feature stores do provide that. So Spark or SQL or some kind of transformations, but Feast mostly allows you to do kind of the serving aspect. So it it, it provides a unified API to kind of uh, train your model and serve your model, and it provides a way to abstract the ingestion of data into the store. Um, so whether that's an offline store or online store used for training or serving. Um, and then we have some va- validation capabilities there. But to drill into uh, what a single person would find valuable there is, uh, so, th- so the idea would be that this person does want to productionize their kind of, 
like let's say they've got some end-to-end ML solution that they're building. They want to productionize that. Um, the, the use case that we're thinking about is kind of a, let's say a small team. Let's say it's maybe it could be one person, it could be like one to three people. Um, they're working on some kind of basic model. Um, one of the biggest problems typically that data scientists face is that um, they want to integrate with an engineering team and the engineering team doesn't really want to help them. And the more the data scientists can do, the better, and the further they can get to kind of um, productionizing. And if they can just make it a single API that a engineer t- engineering team can integrate with, that you know, makes it a lot faster for them to kind of go get live. Um, so what I've often seen at larger companies or you know, some companies is that there's some kind of serverless environment in which a data scientist can deploy like a, Py- a Pyfunk or some basic model serving. And so Feast would be um, in this easy deployment mode. Uh, what we want to do is provide a way that you know, Feast could slot into that environment without you having to deploy like a, a Kubernetes cluster or any kind of large-scale Spark environment. And so what we're trying to do now is um, reuse only the infrastructure <clears throat> infrastructure that data scientists already have available to them. So um Basically, instead of Feast being large-scale infra, kind of rework it into a workflows that are executed from um, an SDK. So this might be kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a large shift in the, the, like how Feast is currently organized. But um, so basically, uh, you'd use Feast out of a Airflow pipeline or existing ETL system, and it would orchestrate data movement. Um, let's say move data from your existing warehouse. Let's say you're a data scientist and you've got DBT, you're doing feature engineering with DBT. You can then post that process, uh, move your data into a, um, let's say into an online environment. Uh, That could be a big table, a data store. It could even serve out of a bucket. Um, And then you deploy, um, you know, your model serving and it would uh, have a feast client that reads out of that store. Um, and you'd be able to also ingest, let's say you're doing some ETLs and your data transformation systems like Airflow or you know, whatever else you're using Dataflow, you'd also be able to ingest into uh, your uh, offline store. And so Feast would facilitate the organization of that store, would structure the tables and allow you to ingest the data and allow you to synchronize the data into your production environment. And what we want to do eventually is also provide um, safeguards. So kind of metrics and statistics and validation, all those things that prevent you from sending the wrong data to your models in production. But but I think a key thing there is uh, we would not ask the user to you know, deploy new infrastructure. And the only thing that they would need to deploy is uh, the online serving. And we try and give them kind of like a, a basic in-memory mode that doesn't mandate kind of a you know, big table or something of that scale. So in the context of Feast, then, what is a feature? What what makes something a feature and how is it defined? So in the context of Feast, that's pretty much any data point. Um, so it's a column, essentially, um, on some entity that you ingest into Feast or that you, you know, materialize into Feast. So we don't really differentiate on what created or, like, between data and features because everything that's being fed into Feast is essentially a feature. And so by saying Feast doesn't do transformations, you mean basically the, those columns have to be created somewhere else if, if they're transformations of the original data. 
Yeah, so your transformations are happening directly upstream from Feast, and that's kind of in a byproduct of the design that we had of our larger data infrastructure at Gojek. So we had stream-to-stream transformations and batch-to-batch BigQuery transformations upstream from Feast. And so Feast was only the layer that's ML-specific that we would use to operationalize that data. I'm curious, when you're talking about these transformations, is this something like, let's say the feature is the number of rides a person took in the last three days or something like that, um, which is an integer, and so Feast expects that integer number to be uh, sort of inserted into the store? Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, so it's like transformed raw event data in almost mo- in most of the cases, yeah. And then there's like a post-transformation step that you could do where like, say the feature in your model is a one-hot encoded day of the week. Um, in that situation, I would probably want to store either the string day of the week, say, or a timestamp or whatever. And then after fetching that back out at like inference time and in the, the real-time fetching, uh, do the one-hot encoding sort of with my own logic, whether that's tft or whatever yep that's right so some of those uh, transformations we'd leave up to the model or the whatever the modeling the model unit is could also be the model serving um, but it's not handled right now in feast so on the tecton side interestingly they have a specific thing called an on-demand or real-time transformation that allows you to define those um, and apply those for both training and serving but we don't have that on the feast side yet so so those are basically on those are basically transformations that happen that cannot be pre-computed, right? That's what you're saying, right, Adam? Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in in how the feature store handles the uh, transformation things. Like, you know, one thing that I've seen in my career is that if you enable engineers or data scientists to do some sort of computation within a environment, like within the feature store, say. Uh, they're going to do much more expensive things than you think they're going to. Like they, they yeah. will immediately hit your guardrails. Uh, and so, you know, if if you tell your customers, hey, we, you know, we have sub twenty millisecond uh, fetching time, but then they want to do this transformation that takes eight seconds every time they request the data. Like that's, I'm, 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 we don't have to go into it now, but I'm just curious how how that is a thing that is dealt with. Oh, uh, so that's interestingly not really a big problem for Feast. I mean, exactly how you said it, because we don't do those transformations. They're all upstream, so everything that's being ingested into Feast is already uh, computed. But uh, we do have kind of variable length uh, arrays that you can store in Feast. So you could store a string, for example, or a like a list of strings in a feature. So sometimes data scientists will just give us like, you know, 1,500 lines of JSON as a single value in a single, like in an array of uh, like a single cell of a feature. And so it's extremely difficult to provide any kind of guarantees on those kind of features. Uh, if, they, if you don't have like fixed length uh, you know, features or feature sets. And so we've run into those problems before. Yeah. So I think Feast, our SLO at Gojek was 10 milliseconds, and we ran that off of a Redis cluster. Uh, but you know, sometimes you'd violate that if the data structures, you know, the values you were storing, didn't conform to those you know, basic requirements. Yeah. I'm curious what you do in that situation. Do you try to work with the data scientists to say, you know, 
hey, let's figure out how valuable this thing is to you and if it's worth the latency, or do you just sort of tell them it's going to be late? Or like, I'm, I'm always interested in that interaction between like an infrastructure team or project that would be managing Feast and the internal customer team that would be consuming it. Yeah, I think this is the point where we should probably highlight that these operational data systems have multiple teams working on them and they all have different incentives. And a lot of the problems you're solving with these systems are organizational. So data scientists often don't care at all about latency. <laughs> they just want to kind of ship their new data and you know they want to see the uplift in BCR or you know whatever conversion rate that you're looking at or whatever metric. Uh, but the engineers typically care a lot because they're the ones integrating with the model serving and the model serving depends on the feature serving. And I think the data scientists only care as much as like, what's the ratio of like feature retrieval and feature computation versus the actual inference, because then they can use slower and fatter models, right? So uh, at least that's my experience. Um, but our, our approach is basically, hey, this is these are the dimensions that could slow down your feature retrieval. And we say like, okay, if you ask for more entities, it's going to be slower. And if you ask for more features, it's going to be slower. If you ask for more elements in your array or in a specific feature, it'll be slower. And so we give them all of those and say, if you, like, here is like a baseline for you of what you can expect. So let's say 10 features, 10 entities, you know, single value per feature, and the type is the size, then you can expect like, like five milliseconds, maybe 99p is 10 milliseconds or something. And if you double everything, it'll linearly slow down your retrieval. And so we gave them like a baseline and they could estimate their SLOs of that. But but it's like a rule of thumb. It wasn't a hard guarantee, um, but it was good enough at the time. Uh, but I think it would be not much better if we could give them like a, like a ceiling and then the engineers would, wouldn't have to kind of load test a specific you know, set of features uh, before going live. I'm curious, I wonder if we should talk a little bit about the offline part of Feast and how that works. I've got the, the Feast website up and it's got this function called get historical features and you give it some names of the features which are you know registered in Feast's uh, feature registry. But if I say, give me these values of these features, can you talk a little bit about like what what happens behind the scene when I make that call and ultimately I get a data frame or something back, but like what what executes when I do that? This is a very tricky one to actually explain if you want to go into the point in time correctness and you know the, the time series aspects, but I can give you the high level. But uh, So it depends on which version of Feast you're looking at. If you're looking at the versions 0.1 to 0.7, that was based on GCP and um, it ran... I'll talk about that flow because it's easier to explain and I'll talk about how it's changed recently. But essentially, you would... We store all data in BigQuery tables, and then you'd have a single query that would um, the user would provide an entity data frame or a spine data frame, and that contains. So basically, like let's say you're doing a query on features for drivers, the user would load a data frame uh, through through this get historical features that contains driver IDs and timestamps, and um, those are basically this. The, the timestamps that correlate to observations that their model is being trained on. And they just want to enrich those with features. So this gets loaded into BigQuery. And within BigQuery, Feast already has organized all of these feature tables. And so we call those feature sets. So a feature set will just have many, many columns for a specific entity. And in this case, it'll be drivers. So maybe you'll have like the drivers profile feature set and the 
the drivers, you know, for ratings or, um, you know, movement or, you know, whatever the feature set uh, is. It's just a grouping of data features that all occur on the same time stamps or the same events, basically. And what Feast will do is it'll do a query on, so for each timestamp, uh, so for each entity and timestamp pair, basically, it'll do a scan backwards for each feature that you're selecting out of each of those feature sets, and it'll join it onto the entity data frame or the spine data frame. So, so you're doing basically like a, 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 a join onto all of these feature sets and you're scanning backwards and ensuring that it's kind of like a fuzzy time join. You're finding the latest feature value for each one of those time timestamps and basically those historical events and enriching that with features up to a certain point. Uh, so you don't scan back infinitely, you scan back up to the maximum edge. Otherwise, it will be an extremely costly operation. And then you export that data frame and return it to the user. And so that's kind of the high-level process. So I was just going to ask about how long that takes for a, you know, not for like a massive data project, but for like your sort of standard users. Um, I think the query takes about, depending on the size of the data, I guess like 10 to 30 seconds. That's great. Yeah. Just to be clear, it's in BigQuery, and so you can kind of infinitely scale with BigQuery. Uh, I, I most queries take 10 to 30 milliseconds. Uh, if you ran that on Spark and you didn't optimize things, uh, it could probably take like hours. And so the process that you sort of, like feature sharing is a super big topic kind of in the industry right now. So it sounds like there's these uh, features about drivers, profiles, things like that, that some one team or multiple teams may may contribute to to say you know this is the driver's I don't know kind of car and where they live and whatever other profile information and that can be sort of shared generally but if I'm trying to detect you know fraudulent drivers and you're trying to detect how long it will take for them to get to a pickup or whatever um, you know those spine data sets are the things that I need to provide for my problem and you need to provide for your problem those have to be put into feast sort of first, and then we fetch everything back out and it does this join for you. Is that, did I interpret that right? Yep, that's right. It's, I like that it sort of breaks apart the, the idea of like, what is universal within the company or the organization who's sharing all of these things and what is specific to a, a model or a project. Yeah. So the, yeah, the features apply to different use cases and so the spines will be different depending on what you're training for. Yeah, you're right. So that's kind of part of the motivation. Um, the means in which we're filling that, I mean, allowing the user to provide a data frame could be different. So I've seen Zipline and some of the other folks will ask the users to provide a query and that'll produce kind of the entity set or you know, candidate generation or whatever you call it. Uh, and mm -hmm. then you'll, you'll, you'll kind of enrich that with features. Um, if I can drop back to a, a very practical level again, say I'm a data scientist and... Uh, my my company has feast in place, and I I just want to train a, a simple model in Scikit-Learn. Uh, what is that process um, going to look like on a on a <laughs> whatever uh, whatever level of details just above writing code? Like, what, what's the high level of of the code that I write then to to access that data to train a model? Would you also be the producer of the data, or just the consumer? Well, let's let's say for now I'm just the consumer. Oh, okay. So basically, you'd 
you know, you'd explore what features exist within Vist. So uh, you normally start with some business use case, right? And it's either customer centric or driver centric or, you know, song if you're Spotify or whatever you know, entity you're looking at. And you know what data you're going to get and what features can, that can be enriched with and what model you want to train. And so you'd look at features that exist on that entity. Um, you'd probably export like a kitchen sink of those. Um, so you'd, you'd look at that through the Feast APIs. There's not a GUI. That's all through through code that you're going to... Yeah, that's all just through the kind of SDK. Yeah. Yeah. So then you just you'd export, you know, you'd select a bunch of those features. Um, we don't have a good process for filtering that down right now. I mean, we allow teams to annotate um, those features and, you know, you could add labels and you could kind of group them um, and you can slice and dice that a little bit, but there's no way to say these features will be great for your use case ahead of time. Uh, you can look at what other models have done that are similar and what features they're consuming as a baseline. But, you know, to start, what often happens is that the data science produce the, their own data and then they will consume those and then they will enrich from other teams. Um, but what we wanted to get to was that they would just start off by just selecting data on uh, an entity, so features on an existing entity. Uh, but you could do that and then you could export those features. You could train a model, you see the, which ones are the best. Um, so you'd use this get historical features um, and you, you know you just train your scikit-learn model. And then if you want to productionize that, it's the exact same list of features and that same model um, that you ship into production. And then you'd, you'd call this Feast API again for, for those features in the online environment. And is that returning like pandas or NumPy or how, how does that work? So Feast um, for training returns an Avro data frame, um, mostly because BigQuery produces an Avro data frame, but you can easily just, you know, we provide helper methods to convert that into different formats. Uh, in production, we give you a dict for Python and for Java and Golang, it's it's native, you know, arrays or lists. Java, Python, Go are all natively supported. Is that across the whole whole feast um, stack? No, no. So definition? Java, Java and Go are purely for um, serving. So okay. the production environment, yeah. So then the, like the definition, the, the, the feature definitions and things are all in Python? Yeah, so everything is, you know, all our APIs are gRPC-based. And so the Java and Go are basically two implementations that we have implemented only in the serving environment on those gRPC APIs. But underneath all the types are based on kind of those protos and gRPC. And Python, we've done the whole gamut, like everything from you know, the management of features and the ingestion and the retrieval. I've got one sort of last question about feature sharing and and sort of either how Feast does it or your experience with this, but like, let's say one of these features uh, is a driver's home address, which is, you know, highly sensitive information and sharing that among a whole bunch of teams might be uh, a little dangerous is like, do you have any sort of guidance on how to deal with this sort of sensitive information when sharing features um, either Feast, you know, implementation specifically or just sort of in general? So with Feast, we didn't fully address that problem, but we provided some tools for those teams. So basically, if you have an operationalizing layer like Feast on top of an existing, um, I guess, lake or warehouse or streams, often that layer is not the one that's the source of truth for PII or sensitive data, right? 
So what we did at Gojek was we'd have a, you know, like a data warehouse team or a central data team that would annotate and identify that data and make sure that that's secure. And um, Feast would allow you to isolate data within projects and then only expose that data. So basically within a project, that's a concept that's one level higher than these feature tables or feature sets. You'd not be able to access that data through Feast if you didn't have access um, to that project. So we gave you some crude isolation there, but Feast also, um, at least Feast 0.7, allows you to isolate um, kind of you can have different serving layers, both for training and for online serving, um, off of the same kind of unified ingestion. So way to describe this, like in the kind of whole universe of features that Feast has, you can have different subsets of those features consumed and stored within different environments. So if you have, let's say in Gojek, we had like GoPay, so that's a payments or you know, digital payments, and I think they even had a bank. At the time, just before I left, the, what we were looking at was um, giving them an isolated environment in which they could store their features. Um, so it's mm-hmm. a complete VPC. It's like a different VPC, but there's still the same central registry of features that they share with the rest of the organization. But it's just nobody has physical network access to that serving layer, so they can't actually access the data. Just they can just see the metadata of those features. So we could restrict them on, on access time as well as um, kind of uh, through the actual physical uh, data plane. Um, but what a lot of what we're looking at right now is also implementing this for Feast. Like, what, what is that deal solution, and what is the solution for Tecton as well? Um, so we're looking at ACLs and um, kind of surfacing or allowing the upstream systems to surface those PII, you know, inf- that information. And, you know, the feature store shouldn't really be the place where you define that as the source of truth, um, unless the feature is uniquely defined in the feature store and it only exists there. Um, and it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's kind of rare for the feature to be the, the, you know, PII data, but not the underlying data. Um, so mm-hmm. typically that kind of propagates down, right? Um, so, so, you know, we're, you know, like if you speak to large banks or corporates, this is something that's really, really important to them. Um, but we're trying to kind of delegate this to upstream systems and just integrate with those systems and try and not abstract and re-implement a lot of the, the ACL and PII and security functionality. Let's see. I can totally see this be a very important consideration for a lot of companies and having that functionality yeah. is, is great that it's there or it's supported at least. Willem, so say you're a data scientist like me and you're at a a company that um, doesn't have any type of uh, feature store but feels the pain of uh, the same type of problem that motivates uh, needing a feature store. Um, Do you have any advice on um, how, how... we, uh, <laughs> we these hypothetical people go out and, and look at um, the options out there and consider uh, whether something might be appropriate for our, our problems? Yeah, I think it's, I always enjoy it when people come to us and say like they really know they need a feature store. Uh, the space is still a little bit um, nascent right now. And so sometimes people... You know, sometimes people will try out feature stores, but they don't really know if they need it. Uh, we see this a lot, actually. Um, 
So I, I actually, I mean, I'm happy when teams try and build an MVP solution without any kind of you know, specific infrastructure like feature stores, and then they realize that there's a problem there and they try and solve it with a feature store. Um, so if you have, you know, if you've tried to deploy using a Redis or some kind of other solution, um, and you like, often it's the teams that have like the real-time serving needs that run into this problem first. Um, or if you've got multiple folks in a project or multiple teams on projects working on features, I'd encourage you to have a look at Feast. Um, if you're just a single person starting out, it's probably not going to be something you need right away. If you're just looking at like batch use cases, not you don't have online serving, uh, it's probably not going to be a high ROI for you either. So if you have just batch training and batch scoring, um, but if you have online, um, maybe try out you know, getting your, your your system up and running first. Um, and if you run into kind of like reuse or scalability or um, kind of deployment pains, like you know, data scientists can't get into production um, and can't get new features into production without engineers, then I'd encourage you to have a look at Feast. Uh, there are some other projects um, out there as well. Um, I'm very biased, so not going to list them out, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you can look at featurestore.org, I guess. <laughs> and you've talked a lot about the uh, the roadmap for Feast um, here, and we don't have to necessarily recap that, but any things that are coming um, down the pipeline that you're particularly excited about that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think the two things, like, so we've spent a lot of time like thinking about what exactly will the modern data stack look like in two or three years. And it's moving it towards this kind of like ELT world where you know, a lot of managed services and the feature store seems to have some overlap with some of those you know, upstream systems like you know, the DBTs of the world if you're doing transformations or the, you know, the sparks of the world. And so for Feast, we're like very focused on this kind of unification of the training and serving and the, the operationalizing data from those uh, existing modern data stack tools. Um, so I think the things that excite me the most about Feast going forward is this kind of simplification of its architecture, um, slimming it down, um, having it occupy a smaller amount or a, a kind of not just less infrastructure, but um, less responsibility and scope. But I think our biggest focus will be kind of making it easy to deploy. And I think I'm excited for folks to try that out. That'll probably not land soon, maybe the end of, you know, I guess May or so. Um, and we'll also be investing heavily in the data kind of validation statistics, both for kind of batch and for the online uh, in production environments. So that's something that I think I'm super excited to double down on. We're going to try and integrate with great expectations or TFDV or many of these tools, um, try and just re-leverage or try and leverage um, those existing tools um, to you know, make sure that you know, data science is not feeding garbage into their models in production, uh, which, which in our surveys with data scientists, well, we're almost always like the, the second most important thing just behind uh, how can I do data transformations. Um, so I'm not sure if that also resonates with your experience, but at least for the data scientists in Gojek, they depend on other teams for their raw or intermediate data. And uh, it just, there was the number one cause of failures for them was upstream data breaking. That definitely resonates with me, yes. So it's so basically those two is the kind of simplification of the deployment and kind of the validation functionality are the two big things. Yeah. 
Awesome. And obviously Feast has um, you know, corporate backing, but it is an open source project. Can you share about ways that if people are interested in, in getting involved with the Feast uh, core uh, project, things they might consider? Yeah, we have, we have a mailing list. We have, uh, if you just go to feast.dev, you can see our kind of community and getting started uh, pages. Uh, we've got some info on it there. We've got a community call every two weeks. Um, and we also, you know, encourage contributions. We love it when people create issues, even if they say, you know, there are bugs or problems um, or they just want to request new features. So, you know, just get us on GitHub or join our community calls or you know, just jump on our mailing list and we, you can just stay up to date. So it's feast.dev. Yeah. Excellent. Any uh, parting words that you'd have? Nope. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. And Adam, thank you for uh, bringing your uh, perspective on this as well. Yeah, thanks for having me.